You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Waterloo. To find out more, visit oasiswaterloo.org. Good morning. Um, we're going to uh, rearrange the uh, little staging area, well, the non-staging area up front a bit. And I'm going to invite uh, down Jill and Lillian and Dave. We're going to assemble ourselves on chairs. So as we do that, rather than staring at us, why don't you take this extra moment to say... Good morning to the person you didn't talk to in a small group about the thing you feel was the most generous thing that ever happened to you. Take it. So, our theme, Nath set the theme for um, what we're going to do now as part of this series we got on being generous. So, being generous is kind of easy when life's easy, isn't it? Uh, One of the things I say about myself all the time, the more worried I get, the more anxious I get, the tougher the situation I'm in and circumstance I'm in, the more stupidly I behave. The more anxious I am, the more stupid I get. Does that ring a bell with anyone else? So it's easy to be generous when life's running smooth. Um, Nath asked us to talk together, us four, about how we live generously when everything goes wrong, when life goes wrong. So these three good people here... Jill and Dave and Lillian, again, Nath chose them. So the one thing we know for certain is that life's gone wrong for them. They are. (laughs) I think that was the selection criteria for getting on this panel. Your life has got really screwed up, somehow or the other. So I think you should give them a round of applause for being willing to talk about it. So, uh, Lillian, uh, well, I, know, uh, I know quite a lot about uh, Lillian and Dave and Jill, and we've talked lots about each other's stories. But um, Lillian, I, I, have, I have to say this about Lillian. Lillian is an extraordinarily generous person. Some of you will know her, some of you won't, but I know she's extraordinarily generous. And I know, Lillian, your life has not turned out, to put it mildly, the way you were expecting it to when you were in your early 20s? No. <laughs> Not at all. And I don't know that I'm a generous person in any way, Steve. Don't you go. Uh, but yes, when I was in my... I got married when I was 23. And because I grew up in a home that, uh, where my parents got divorced when I was eight years old, I went into marriage with a... If I'm going to be married, it has to be a lifetime thing. So my ex-husband and I at the time had the joke that we would reconsider after 60 years of marriage if we would keep being married because thinking 60 years, we'd be quite old. So maybe that was quite a safe. So I went into the whole thing of wanting marriage to be a lifetime thing. Um, And lo and behold... (laughs) Didn't quite happen like that. So five and a half... My husband and I, we're from Denmark... Uh, came to, well, we did some training with ICTUS many summers ago, and then ICTUS came... ICTUS is a church, isn't it? ICTUS is a church in southeast London, start, yeah, right and, it's, and it's planted, started lots of churches. Yes, started lots of churches. So we did some church leadership and church planting training with them 30 years ago now, and went back to Denmark, did some church leadership and some different kind of work there, came back to start a church and a gap year program in Hemel Hempstead. Um, and I ended up being the senior 
pastor of that church uh, in Hemel Hempstead, and we had some churches abroad as well. We ran a Bible study and some community projects. I was managing three shoreside centers. Um, yes, yeah, so we had lots of things going on, and then my husband, five and a half years ago, decided that he wanted a divorce because he wanted to come out as gay. Um, and I think for him, it was a newer thing that he had acknowledged himself as being gay. I think I probably, in 30 years of marriage, probably about halfway through, I think I acknowledged that I was married to a gay man, and that's just how it was, and we just had to find a way through that. Um, sadly, when that happened, oh, I suppose, I don't know if we're allowed to say that up here, but it was a little bit like the shit hit the fan, because it, was, it wasn't just, we didn't just have to deal with the divorce and the family breakup. It also went really pear-shaped in the church, really pear-shaped and became a really, really difficult time. So at the same time, I lost my family, my, so the family unit, my home, my job, my church. And the, so the church that you'd started together yeah. and built... Yeah, we had planted the church. Threw you both out. Yeah. Uh, you and your husband. Well... I probably made the choice already because Arno had had the vision of church planting. I decided that if he wanted a divorce, I couldn't keep working his vision. So I had decided to move to London. He was asked to not just leave the church, but leave the town. Hmm. So how did you deal with that? Oh, my word. A lot of tears. There's no way other than to say that I think the following two years were really tough. And I think I just had to stick with living each day and not try to think about how to survive long term. So I got a job in London where I was, help, where I was managing a rehab for women with complex needs. In some ways that was my saving grace because I was so busy. I had no time to think about how I was. And I was hearing all these stories of women who had had a much harder life than I did. That helped me get life into perspective. And uh, yet you're here in church when it was a church, you taught them to love the way that Jesus loves, to follow Jesus. And, and they threw all of that away. And in your moment of struggle, you were ditched. So why are you here? Why? I mean, I why haven't you given up? That's quite a good question. Up? Do you know what? Oasis was the last church I wanted to come, come to. <laughs> I can understand it's that. It's a little bit of a joke that this is my church now. Because... I didn't want a church that was anything about LGBT. I just wanted anything gay to be out of my life, can I just say? <laughs> and now you're sat right next to one. <laughs> so yeah, and, and I know Niall told me the other day and it's God's sense of humor. <laughs> but I have to say I tried really hard to be part of other churches. I could not come to terms with church that weren't churches that weren't inclusive. So churches that were judgmental towards LGBT, I just couldn't live with it. I found it really hard. And when I came here, Oasis has very much been part of my journey towards healing. Coming here, being part of the church, and getting, yeah, 
can I just say, I love Oasis. I love the LGBT work. I love having so many friends within that are LGBT. I just think it's wonderful. It's been part of healing me. We return to all of that in, in a bit. Uh, bit. Thank you, uh, Lillian. I, I should say again that Lillian has not only become part of the church here, but as any of you who are involved in the inner workings of the church, you know that Lillian is normally the person who's here amongst the earliest, latest to leave. Um, gives, you give yourself completely, which is an extraordinary thing. You know, when we think about generosity, I always think when you talk about living generously, people think about giving money, but giving your time, giving your attention, listening to someone, that's probably the rarest form of generosity and the most precious form. I think it's fantastic, Lillian. But Dave, your story, you are one of those gay men that Lillian was trying to get away from. <laughs> I remember her first sharing this, and it was just so hilarious. <laughs> and now Lillian is classed as one of the heroes of the LGBT group. Mm. <laughs> well, actually, uh, this week for um, Open House, uh, Open House is our LGBT inclusive place where you can come and be anonymous or whatever you like. But um, this week, um, uh, Open House met, and um, I was asked to... Um, I was asked to contribute who was my queer hero. And um, uh, people kept emailing me and asking me, come up with a quick queer hero. And um, Dave is my queer hero. And I, I wrote uh, to uh, the open house group and I said, Dave, you're my uh, hero because I think your compassion, your generosity, um, your attention to the needs of others your ability to keep going, your courage, the things that you've been through, I, th I think are an extraordinary um, example to me. I've learned so much from that. Tell us about the RAF, because that's a story you've kept kind of quiet, but then recently I've seen, I've seen your story in the news a bit. It's been in various newspapers, hasn't it? You were thrown out of the, the RAF. Is that true? Yeah, uh, thrown out in January the 16th, to, uh, 1975. Um, uh, tell us about how that you were thrown out because of? Because I'd be queer. <laughs> but because um, I, was, I identify as a gay man. And um, I joined the Royal Air Force when I was 17, 17 and a half, something like that. And um, I knew I was gay then. I was quite happy being gay. But of course, at that time, it was illegal. Um, I was under 21, so it was illegal anyway. And 1967 is when it became legal for 21 plus, well, partially legal. And so it was illegal, so we just kept quiet about it. And um, there's quite a few of us in the forces that were gay. And then one day I was on holiday, and, um, and my, my dad phoned me up and said, we've got a telegram for you. And uh, so, what's it saying? He says, he's ordering you back to base. And I thought, ooh. And um, at the time, it was the Cyprus. People probably here wouldn't remember it, but it was the, the kind of the civil war in Cyprus. And so, my dad thought I was being called up for that. Now, I was a really high-ranking tuba player. Right? <laughs> I was a musician. I wasn't a pilot or anything. I was a musician. Our jobs had been doing the ambulance stuff. But I got back and he said to me, 
report to the guardroom. And um, so we went to the guardroom and uh, they put me in the cell. What's going on here? And, um, and then I was marched to an interview room, an interrogation room, we used to call it, and by two um, military police, IF police. And uh, then <coughs> there were two, what we call special branch, special investigation branch, they're waiting for me. And it was a stereotypical, I try not to laugh a bit, it was a stereotypical interview, a good cop and a bad cop <laughs> kind of thing. And they said to me, are you a homosexual? Are you a, a puff? Are you a fudge packer? All those types of things. And it weren't very nice at all. So for two hours, I was being interviewed about it all. At the time, I felt it was wrong being gay because I'd become a Christian and was told that it was wrong. And uh, so they went on for a couple of hours and then they escorted me to my room and you know, just searched the room for things. And then they said to me, we'd be investigating you. You can't speak to anybody at all about it. And you can't talk to any of your friends about what's happening. Um, I w wasn't allowed any solicitor. I wasn't allowed anybody. It was just me. And I, I was just 21 then. And, um, and then it led on, went on for a bit. And for six months, I was um, being investigated. And every month, I was being interrogated. And, um, and then they said to me, of course, you do realize that you're going to be court-martialed, that this will be on your record, and that um, you'll be leaving. And uh, I said, okay. But one great thing about it was that I started going to this church around the corner. And I, when I heard, I jumped on my motorbike. And uh, well, it wasn't really a motorbike, it was a sewing machine. But um, you know, I jumped on my motorbike, I went to the youth leader's place. Now, they knew that I was gay, but I thought it was wrong. But they just cuddled me, they just hugged me. Yeah. And they didn't say anything negative. Mm. And I'm still friends with them 50 years later. <laughs> what, what does it feel like, or what did it feel like, Dave? To, you, you said it yourself then. You said, I was gay, and it was illegal. Mm. And then you said, and I happened to be a Christian, and I thought that gods didn't approve. So what does it feel like to feel that you're illegal, even with the divine? Right. With the divine, it's quite funny, because if it wasn't for that, if it wasn't for God, and if it wasn't for the church at that time, although, looking back, they were homophobic, but at that time, I needed that love, and they gave me that unconditional mm. love. Mm. I still felt, I remember once praying, and God said, I love you. And if a star blows up, I can create another one. But if you blow up, I can't create another you. Mm. And I thought, wow. And um, I know that scientifically it's crap, but you know, it really <laughs> got to me. And so, because I felt being gay was wrong, I felt God was changing me. Mm. I've gone prayer for deliverance and stuff like that. But it, over this last three weeks, I've had to relook at the past. And... Um, we look at the things that have happened and realize that some of the things that happened, some of the homophobic in the church and stuff like that, actually kept me alive. Mm. I hate it. I can look back retrospectively and think, oh, it kept me alive because they loved me. I didn't realize then it was conditional love, not unconditional love. It kept me alive because some of my friends were dying of AIDS mm. as well. And people 
that I used to speak to that I couldn't do their funeral because I was, because I was a Christian. They wouldn't let a Christian near them. Mm. And so that was hurtful. And, um, but the thing that got me is that people say that I was chucked out because I was gay, but I wasn't. I was chucked out because Her Majesty's government and Her Majesty's forces are homophobic. And that's the big difference. I'm not going to let them shame on me now. You know, it's them that takes the shame, not me. Thank you, Dave. Now, I'm going to come back to you all. Uh, I'm going to talk to Jill for a bit and then come back to you all and ask the three of you what you think, the big things you think you've learned. What are the big principles? Because you've survived this, um, walking through this valley of the shadow of depression and you know, rejection and struggle. So what have you learned out of it? And then actually what we're going to do in about five, six minutes' time is come to everybody else for some questions and Nath and perhaps uh, someone else is going to run around probably with one of these mics that we'll have to give up and, uh, and so that you can put your questions to uh, uh, Lillian and Dave and Jill. So, uh, Jill, um, uh, we, we actually had a cup of coffee in, in uh, Costa before and we we just uh, talked through how we were going to structure this and Dave himself he had, Dave said so re in reality we're going to talk about divorce deviance and death <laughs> that's Dave's description of this so um, we've had divorce and deviance <laughs> death shall I, shall I do a little bit of divorce yeah. as well so um, divorce yes. and death D divorce and death um so, just can I just say, amazing people, right? Mm. These two, just fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, two things, and I won't I won't be long because you've heard it peppered in talks uh, previously that I've done. But when I was a kid, when I was eleven, um, my parents got divorced. Um, the thing about that experience was it was completely out of the blue and my dad had been having an affair with the best friend of the family. So that, as a kid, threw up all sorts of rubbish, challenges, difficulties. Um, it's hard to trust again when that's happened. Uh, and for that to happen when you're 11... Uh, at that moment in your life where you're kind of being propelled into, you know, adulthood and all the rest of it. So there's a, there's a whole load of stuff in there. And I think it, for me, that was a, that was a massive loss experience. It's not quite, when I talk about it, it doesn't feel quite as massive as these two. But when, but when you're 11 and you're trying to make sense of stuff, and you realize that all of these things are sticky, these experiences stick to you as you grow up. Um, and then when I was about 22, 23, my mum got diagnosed with um, cancer, and she battled it uh, for a couple of years, and eventually she died um, in a hospice uh, of cancer. I was very close to my mum because of what had happened when I was 11. And so the loss of my mum at a very young age, when I was just starting out on my teaching career, um, again, had a, like a huge um, loss impact in my life. Um, 
They're both grief experiences, both of those things. And what was fascinating was the rubbish theology that appeared in both situations. Um, I remember my mum being told she wasn't welcome in the church because she was a divorcee, because that's what it was like back then. Um, And then when my mum was dying of cancer, someone in the church that I was a part of then um, felt able to come up to me and say, the reason your mum's dying is because she's got unforgiven sin in her life. So, (laughs) trying to make sense of that at the same time as walking that experience through as a daughter about to lose her mum and... Yeah. So, so, so Jill, loads of people, I guess some people here, have been through not that experience, but they've been through the experience of church judging them, judging people they love, condemning them, condemning people they love. And, and what happens to people as, you know, is slowly deconstruct their faith, often to the point where there's nothing left of it. So but you've not done that and you still walk with Jesus because that's what we are, aren't we? We're not into some kind of esoteric, you know, philosophy of salvation and living well. We're into following Jesus. So why are you still doing that when so many people give up on the church? Um, I used to play hockey. One of the things that used to be told to do was to turn and face, like face that flipping hard ball that was about to get whacked at you. And with those experiences, there was just, there was something inside of me which was like, don't run, just turn and face it. Turn, turn and face it. I knew that what was being said theologically, even when I was a little kid, I knew it didn't add up to what I was reading. It didn't add up to a, a God who is described as love. I, I, I had enough brain capacity to work that out. But I also knew that I, I had to turn and face the reality of what it was. I think sometimes people run from their faith because we're afraid of the hard work. And so I I don't shy from hard work. I I just leant into it and I was angry and sad and and all the rest of it, trying to make sense of what was happening. The other thing was that there were a few good people. There were a few good people. I remember there was one particular person, especially when my my mum was dying, who just came up to me and and said, just going to stand in the gap for you. And that was it. I, ju- I just needed to know that there was someone else who was going to be alongside in that journey. So from each, th- all three of you, one big principle that y- you, you, know, you genuinely say has got baked into you because of the experience you've been through. And um, also be thinking about what would you like to ask this is a great moment, isn't it, for honesty together because uh, we're all on this journey of following Jesus. Those stuff 
is difficult. We sang a song about it at the beginning, actually, um, and I, I kind of took some shots of the uh, screen. I took two shots uh, of it. Uh, and I will fear no evil, for God is with me. And if my God is with me, whom there sh shall I fear? And then we all sang together, Oh, no, you never let go through the calm and through the storm. You ne never let go of me. Easy to sing, hard to practice. What have you learned? Well, I used to preach about Jesus being our rock. And I have to say that that probably was tested in me hugely at the time. A good friend of me, a little similar to what you said, told me, Lillian, God's got you. That probably was what I held on to the whole time when I didn't know how to pray. I didn't even know that God was there anymore. I just, the only prayer I prayed for a long time was, thank you, God, that you've got me. My one, excuse me, was Psalm 139, written by King David, who was a womanizer. And we don't know if he had an affair with a guy or not, it doesn't matter. But, you know, Psalm 139 says, you created, I created you. You are mine. And that's, that's what got me through. It got me through when I was chucked out, and it got me through in the church when people were rejecting me. God never rejected me. And that was fantastic to realize his love. The church at that time wasn't showing it, but God was. So I didn't lose my faith, if you like, my belief in following Jesus. I lost my faith in the church mm. <laughs> and his followers, mm. but not Jesus. That's all got me mm. through. Um, I think for me, the, it was the realization that you cannot, you cannot know what tomorrow is. Um, the only thing you're ever certain of is the moment you're in. So live that well. Do that generously. Um, be present in, in that moment because, because it could all change tomorrow. So questions. Who's got a question? Stick up your hand and I think Nathan will run to you with a mic. And we're going to take three questions at a blow. So... Um, so we can get more answers in. Great. Thank you, everybody that spoke. That's really kind of you to share a personal part of your life, and it helps us know about you. So thank you to all of you. Um, my persecutors, I actually find that I'm now in the long period of gratitude. If I hadn't have been told that I was a reject, that I wasn't accepted in the faith that I was brought up in, that generations of my family followed, that I wouldn't now be here, sat comfortably, confident, having been dunked over there by Steve and had the best day, had the best baptism ever, in a church that is like an elastic band. It can grow as I, on my faith journey. And I wondered, um, any of the panel, and Steve, if um, they feel thankful to their persecutors, how they feel about that person that said they didn't, you weren't wanted. Thank you. Great, thanks, Anne. There's a question up there. Is there another one? I want to ask a question, stick up your hand. Hello. Um, I've... Um it's the first time I've been here. I'm from Leeds. I'm just here for the weekend. And it, 
it feels like I've died and gone to Greenbelt. <laughs> and uh, so I bring blessings from Leeds. Um, I'm kind of white, as you can see. I'm heterosexual, I'm middle class, I'm um, educated. Um, I'm in a church which um, I think is struggling with, with being kind of real. And um, we, we get things like the Bible is very clear on, on uh, that it's just men and women who should be in relationships. And it drives me quite crazy. Um, and I wanted some advice. It's how do I, how do I, it's my local Anglican church. It takes me 10 minutes to drive there, uh, to walk there. I don't want to drive somewhere. So it's advice. How do I stay in the church um, when every week I want to leave that church because the theology is just not counter to what I understand, but counter to love, if you like. Two good, two good questions to uh, start with. So um, uh, why don't we uh, answer those? And if you've got another question, stick up your hand and Nathan come, come see you. Let, why don't you dig into those two things? Who wants to go first? Jill. Uh, persecutors. Um, I, so there's two things I want to say. The first thing is, um, I think boundaries are really important. Um, so, um, I'm just thinking about, uh, my, uh, how I related to my dad, um, when he'd left and how I, how I processed that as I grow older. My dad died last year, um, during COVID. Um, I, I, had to put in place boundaries which were about protecting who I who I was as an individual emotionally. It, do you know, like I, I had to take account of self-care in trying to make sense of how I was going to relate to this this person who was who was my dad, who I did love, but it was a, a different kind of relationship. And so there's something that happens in my head which is about um, see a boundary is like a, a fence with a, you know, it's got a gate in, and I'm I can. Did you see that? <laughs> Just take a deep breath, everybody. I was like, I haven't said anything that dramatic, <laughs> and then I saw your face, Dean. Um, in moving on, um, a result of the pandemic. A result of the pandemic. Um, so a, a boundary is like a fence with a, with a gate in. I choose who I allow to affect or not affect me emotionally. Like I can, and that may mean keeping distance from people and all the rest of it. So with my dad, I, I made a decision not to see him very much. I, I'm, I just made that choice. That was really hard. I had people telling me, well, that's not very Christian. Um, and I remember having, a, some of you, you will know Jeff Lucas. Some of you know who Jeff Lucas is? Yes, one of Steve's good friends. And uh, I remember talking to Jeff about it. And he was like, yeah, no, I totally get that. And that was like a moment of, oh, yeah. So you have to do that for your own protection in terms of how you feel and all the rest of it. But then it's like, but they're human too. They're human too. And I make mistakes I get things wrong 
And, and, and as soon as you are able to hold that in your head, I'm not perfect, and keep your boundaries, then that's how I made sense of that. Mm. Um, and about the church thing as well, we, as an LGBT person, we do need allies in the church. And they're very, very, very important. Not to talk in our place, but to support. And um, I remember speaking to a, to a mum and dad of a, of a gay son, and two gay sons, and um, they were in Devon somewhere. We had a service here, well, not a service, a, a conference, and I can't remember what it's called now, but about LGBT, and she went out crying, so I went to speak to her, and she said her two sons are gay, and that they've left the church because of that, and they're still in the same church, what should we do? And so we're talking about him, we say, just let them know where you stand, let them know where you stand. And then three months later, I got an email from them both saying that we stood up in church when they started preaching against it. We just stood up and turned our back <laughs> on the preacher. And then we walked out. And we have never been back since. And when we told our two sons that we'd done that, they couldn't believe it. They, they went back to church. They both live in Brighton, the um, two sons. And um, they started going back to church as well because their parents witnessed showed them that there was love. And so it's really standing up and um, sometimes shouting, but never whispering. Too many, too many LGBT people have died because the church have whispered. And so it's, for our allies, it's standing up and saying, you're wrong, you're talking a load of crap. Jesus is inclusive. And... Um, in the end, it's your mental health and your well-being is important as well. And if people can't cope with that in the church, then we have to do what Jesus did, said, and dust our feet. It's horrible, but I think we sometimes have to do that. I think to both of you, I think I'd just say that one of the things that I've really liked, as Steve says, that if it doesn't look like love, it's because it isn't love and it isn't God, because God is love. So I think measuring up against that, it's got to look like love and standing up for love always. And for our persecutors as well, I only have power over me and my reactions. I don't have power over other people. So again, I have to turn it around and look at myself and say, is my response looking like love? Is my reaction looking like love? And if it's not, I own the responsibility to work on it. Great, thank you, Lillian. We're kind of out of time. I'm sure uh, some of you would privately like to pick up these uh, conversations uh, with these uh, three folks. Isn't it extraordinary when you stop and you listen to someone's story and you discover so much about them and so empathy is built once we know someone. That's the point. It's all the people that we don't know that we tend to judge. They're all on a journey just as us. We're all provisional, aren't we? We're none of us final. We're all in transition to a better understanding. And if we see ourselves in that way, then it uh, helps us in an extraordinary way. Can you give these three wonderful people a huge round of applause? Right. Great.
And I'm aware as I think the band come back, it's Nate, Nate coming back, I'm aware as, as we dealt with these three issues, there are lots of issues we've not dealt with this morning. An issue that we de- we've talked about and we talk about a lot is, is about racial uh, equity and inclusion. Uh, so there are so many of these issues that intersect with one another. I'd just like to finish with this quote from his great theologian, Martin Niebler. Martin Niebler uh, wrote this, and he wrote this in Hitler's Germany. He was one of the great theologians, along with Barr and Bonhoeffer, who stood up to the power of the Nazi regime when most of the church caved in. And you'll know these words. He, he said, Martin said, they came for the socialist, but I was not a socialist, so I did not speak out. They came for the trade unionists, but I was not trade unionists, so I did not speak out. They came for the Jews, but I was not a Jew, so, they did not, so I did not speak out. They came for me, and there was no one left to speak up for me. It's speaking up for one another and creating that community of love, which is why the only way you can follow Jesus, actually, authentically, is in a community of diversity. Hence the Oasis Circle of Inclusion. God bless you. Thank you.